Well, as I mentioned, even though verses 12 to 14 isn't our main idea, I read those few verses to highlight something of the tenor of the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is written by the apostle, and right now he's in his old age, an old man. According to church history, he has to be carried to church on the arms of others. Uh, and he's writing to assure the church that they have indeed received eternal life. He's writing to assure them that they have received eternal life. And what exactly is his intent? He wants to make them know that the message that they have received from the apostles, that Jesus Christ, very God of very God, who had come down to live as a man and suffered and died at the hands of sinful men, that that Jesus had indeed come and died for their sake. So that portion that we read just now where John is communicating, oh, you fathers, I'm writing to you. You young men, I'm writing to you. You children, I'm writing to you. He's doing this in a warm way to communicate these very things, assurance. He writes to these people as though they're family members, as though they're people who he remembers from this congregation. Remember, this is a letter he's writing to them. He may not be in their midst at this time. But certainly he's met these people. Certainly he has been among these people for at least some time. And he's writing to assure them that they have received salvation. I mean, what a thing it would be to hear an apostle, the one who rested on Jesus' breast, to hear from him that you, your sins have been forgiven by the Christ who I rested on. It's you that knows the Father. What a thing that would be that to hear from him that you have overcome. That would certainly comfort them. So my point is that John is zealous in verses 12 to 14 to provide some form of consolation to these saints and so addresses them as family, as those who are part of the household of God. But with that in mind, the next couple of verses may seem kind of confusing. John is writing to Christians, yes, but then he immediately goes on to present to the saints a sober warning. After speaking tenderly to them in verses 12 to 14, he says these words in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. And we shouldn't see this as the apostle being schizophrenic in his old age. He's not bipolar or something, going from being warm-hearted and then sober-minded at one point in time. Of course, that would mess up our understanding of inspiration. But with that aside, he's not schizophrenic. He wants to ensure that his audience is well spiritually, holistically. You wouldn't think that a parent is doing a good job if all that parent did was affirm their child at every waking moment of their lives. You wouldn't think that they were doing a good job if they just tapped their child on the back for everything in their lives. Of course, you would expect them to provide warnings, to provide cautions, to provide admonishments for when there is danger looking ahead, lurking ahead, sorry. In a similar way, the Apostle of Love doesn't shy away from ensuring the holistic health of the recipients of this letter. As Christians, we don't just need to be affirmed or assured. We need to be exhorted, rebuked, and warned. And that's what we have in verse 15. It's an urgent plea. And we should notice it as an urgent plea, or we should notice that it's an urgent 
quickly by the way that John introduces the very command. It's as though he's trying to grab our attention so that we hear the weight of this first injunction in the book of the first John. We don't see the apostle making use of loving expressions which typically preface or end his remarks. If you look at the warning John gives concerning false teachers and abiding in Christ and the need to uh, be among the saints and fellowship with them and love the saints, you would see throughout this book he says things like, Dear little children. He says things like, Beloved. He says things like Christians, but I don't think he uses that word, but he, he says things that remind them, brothers, that reminds them that they're in the household of faith. He says things that uh, are meant to convey warmness, are meant to convey that they are close to him. But now all we hear is stop it. Don't do it. Watch out. John is militant. Not that he doesn't take other issues seriously, but John, the disciple of love, sees that this matter is of particular import because it has perils for Christians living at that time. And the reason I'm preaching to you today is to say that it has perils for Christians living in this time, Christians living now. We should be wary then of scoffing at this command as though it's irrelevant to us. These words are not penned here specifically for the ungodly. John is not trying to make a detour to whisper some words of advice to the unbelieving world. No, he says it to you and to me. The saints who live before the face of God as forgiven overcomers. He exclaims, do not love the world. We may be tempted to think that we have made too far advances in the Christian life for this to be a problem for us. Or perhaps we may tend to dwell on this command's applicability to someone else. Like, you know, a friend who is quite worldly. You know someone in your household who acts quite worldly. You may think of them and not about yourself. But we shouldn't shift our attention from ourselves to look at others who are more simply than ourselves externally. The text here demands that we ask ourselves the question, do you dare say love the world? If we are not weary of this reality, this danger, we may find ourselves being in love with darkness while claiming to be walking in fellowship with God who is in the light. Now as we dig into this text, it's evident that John's main point is to persuade his readers to not love the world. That's obvious and I belabor that point to some degree. But he supports this command with three arguments or incentives. The first is that the love of the world is incompatible with the love of the Father. So first, the love of the world is incompatible with the love of the Father. The second is an appeal to the origin or the source of the love of the world. And the third is the fleeting nature of the world. So we'll look at these in turn. The first incentive John gives us is captured in verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world John is speaking about, of course, is not the created order. It's not the shiny spinning globe that we see pictures of, that the telescopes uh, take pictures of. That's not the world that John has in view here. He's talking about that sphere of existence that's under Satan's control, or put differently, that served the agenda of Satan by opposing God. That's what John means by 
the world. Anything that opposes God's purposes, God's kingdom, that is what John describes here as the world. And contrary to what we may think, this love that John speaks of is binary. There are only two options. We are either ultimately concerned with the glorification of the Godhead, or we're cherishing the world. We're loving, by extension then, the God of this world. It should really shake us then, not simply because Satan is the adversary of our souls. Why would you love someone who is seeking every day to destroy you? It should shake us about that. But more importantly, Satan is actually a puny God compared to the God of this world. As we, many of us, must have watched in the Avengers movie, Satan is low-key to the Hulk. He's a puny God. There, there is a sense in which Satan and all that he offers, all that he can give you, even if he was to do it with you like he did with Christ, and to bring you to the top of that peak and look across the mountain and show you everything that he could give you, that would pale in comparison to the God, Yahweh, who actually exists, who created him. What I mean by this, then, is that it's a cosmic tragedy to make much of the things of the world and the God of this world, to dope over them, to direct our affection towards them, and to count God as less worthy of our affections and our highest desires. I mean, have you ever read of the tales of the exploits of Yahweh? Have you ever read through the Old Testament and seen how he has raised up kingdoms at his word? Have you ever read and seen how he's destroyed people, humbled men to eat grass, those who have been the king of this world, who look down from their uh, great heights and their buildings and edifices and look down at the, the peons below them, and God made them eat grass. Nebuchadnezzar, we can think of Pharaoh, we can think of Stalin, we can think of Hitler, we can think of any king or any ruler of this world. All of them have been made and will be made to bow the knee towards God. He makes the gods that paraded in the Marvel universe look like Muppets in comparison from Sesame Street. This is the God who deserves our utmost. This is the God who is deserving of our highest glory. And brethren, do you see that when we glory or boast, I'm sorry, what we glory or boast about within this life displays where our affections are. Jesus says it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is treasure here signifying besides something of value which we prize most highly? We can so easily boast in and describe an inordinate amount of worth to things of this world. And that's seen easily in the things that we talk about, the things that worry us. Think about that. The things that worry you the most are the things that are probably closest to your heart. The things that you gravitate towards in your spare time. Those are the things that usually are the are indicators of where your heart your heart's treasure lies. When we do this, when we direct our attention to things that are 
of the world and not towards God, we show that they are greater loves for us than God himself. John Piper offers this helpful thought. He says, if we don't see the greatness of God, then all things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with the streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. If I can be so bold as to add to Piper's quote, loving the world is like being impressed with seasoned carrots as a bacon substitute. From afar, perhaps, you might mistake them for bacon. They might be reddish, they might be orange, they might sizzle and crackle in the frying pan. But it's a disappointing substitute, I can assure you, and I haven't had it. I apologize to my vegan friends among us, but my only, my only point is, it's an incomparable substitute. They aren't equal, they're not on the same level in terms of offering satisfaction. Brethren, we ought to give diligence to ensuring that our hearts and minds do not esteem the things of this life for the primary reason that in doing so, we display satisfaction with trinkets and not with true riches. When you devote yourself to the things of this life, to the things of this world, it's like if you prefer those cracking, frying carrots over a nice strip of bacon. And that's ridiculous, frankly. A heart that has grown cold, though, a heart that has grown cold in this regard needs no other remedy than the one that first allowed it to taste the sweetness of God in the first place. The same spirit that begets life and grants a love and desires for the things of God and a repudiation of the things of the world also nourishes and strengthens our strength, strengthens our affections for God, pardon me. The Christ has suffered unspeakable sorrows and pain that he may, dis may put on display that the power of the world he's able to subdue under his feet. The power of the world was broken when Christ went to the cross and Christians indeed show both the efficacy of God's work to the extent that they repudiate the world and live apart from it and live separate from it and cherish the things of God. Jesus came to bring us back to God. And it wasn't that he was bringing us spatially back to God as though God doesn't permeate every place in existence. That's, it's not that we were not proximately close to God. It's that in the garden, Adam strayed. Adam sinned, and in doing so, broke fellowship with God. In doing so, he separated himself from relationally from God, from fellowship with God. Jesus came so that we could be brought back into that relationship that was once lost. And not just brought back to relationship like Adam had, as though we're going back to a Adamic state, but brought back to a relationship that's better than what Adam had. That's founded on better promises. You recognize that as a Christian, when you're in the covenant of grace, there's no slipping out. There's no falling by the wayside. There's no jumping over the fence as we hear. When we think about being plucked away from God's hand, it's not just that you can't be plucked out of God's hands, but it's that you can't jump over the fence either. The fence is high enough, 
that you're going to stay within the perimeter of God's courts, of God's household. That's, that's the Christian life that we, that we have been called to and the relationship that God has established with his people now in and through the new covenant. But I say this to say that we ought then, having received this better relationship, having received these better promises, we ought then to be vigilant and to live lives considering how we can cultivate greater degrees of love for God, the Father, while at the same time fleeing what Paul calls worldly passions. But let's move on to our second point, or the second incentive for not loving the world. We just looked at the fact that the love of the world and the love for God are incompatible. The world is a lesser God, our idol, that we can be drawn to, and our affections, our interests, what we talk about, all serve as indicators of whether we are seeking to make glorious the world or whether we are cherishing God as our greater love. That's incentive number one. John provides us with, when you love the world, it is basically hatred for God, the Father, and doing so, by, by loving the world, you are not cherishing God the Father as glorious, as satisfying for your own soul. That's what it displays. You may have noticed, though, that the Apostle does not provide us with a list of things that constitute the world. In fact, instead of appealing to objects or stuff, he actually appeals to broad categories of things that we're drawn to because of our corruption. In verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world... Everything that the world comprises is the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. And it is not from the Father. It does not proceed from the Father, but is from the world. After claiming that love of the world and love of the Father are incompatible, he provides us with additional supporting justification. The reason is that the source or where the inspiration comes from when you are loving the world is not God. It is the fallen corruption that pervades all of the, the fallen creation. John writes that true Christianity begins with God. He begins this letter with this in mind. He says, God is light. But the next question then is, what sort of person ought I to be if God is light? That's the flow of the reasoning of biblical Christianity. Love of the world perverts that. It twists it on its head. A person of the world says, I don't need to be motivated by God. I need to be motivated by how I feel, how I want to be satisfied, how I think I will be most happy, how I think the world is going to provide for me. That's how the world thinks. The book of 1 John has the opposite logic. God who is like God in whom there is no shadow of change, God in whom is all holiness, calls us to live also lives of holiness. But sometimes when Christians are called out for inordinate attention to the world or things in this life, they cry out legalism. They recoil and ask the question like, do you expect me to be reading my Bible and evangelizing all day? That's ridiculous. Matthew Henry accurately sums up what I think is the heart of this problem, or the heart of an individual who recoils in such a fashion. He says, Many vain efforts have been made to evade the force of this passage. By listening to this, 
limitations, distinctions, or exceptions. Many have tried to show how far we may be carnally minded and love the world, but the plain meaning of these verses cannot be mistaken. Unless this victory over the world is begun in the heart, a man has no root in himself but will fall away, or at most remain an unfruitful professor. Yet these vanities are so alluring to the corruption in our hearts that without constant watching and prayer, we cannot escape the world or obtain victory over the God and Prince of it. Do you, under, you understand what he's getting at? When someone comes to you and your objection is you're being too sanctimonious, you're being too critical, why are you asking that I live a life of some sort of zealot? Why are you asking that I live the life of some sort of Puritan? Matthew Henry is saying the response of trying to make carve out exceptions, the response of trying to make a whole bunch of distinctions, that response is rooted in a heart that is not aligned with God's heart, with God's own interests. John isn't leaving any bigger room. The full weight of the first commandment is brought to bear here. Our passions and desires should all firstly and supremely be directed towards God. Otherwise, they will be stifled by the deceitfulness of the world. But how often do we cultivate the exact opposite in our lives by the things that are visually stimulated? John adds, or the things that visually stimulate us, sorry. John adds to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and, war and warns us concerning them. We may be tempted to not only think about things like women, opulent houses, designer clothing, and the like. We, we may be tempted to think that that's all that's in view here. But we're reminded here to avoid as much as possible the sights that actually arouse in us unfitting desires. So when Paul writes in Thessalonians, to shun the very appearance of evil. That's what John, the apostle, has in mind here. He's warning us to avoid as much as possible the sights, those things that enter your eyes and arouse unfitting or sinful desires. And this is a huge struggle in the realm of entertainment. Believe you me, even for me, it's a huge struggle. Huge, huge struggle. I mean, many of you have heard the issues that have come up with Disney now. It's a huge struggle, and it will be an even bigger struggle going forward. Many TV shows are simply filled with inappropriate images that we can only call soft porn. But even sometimes the themes of these shows are ungodly. I'll tell you a story that shattered me, and uh, a couple of the brothers here will laugh at me. But I used, I used to once love the show Inception. It was fantastic. It was the most glorious show I ever watched. The drama, the music, the cinematography, everything was great. It had in the best actors. It, it was, it was, it was it. But then after a couple of years, and unfortunately my, my regenerate mind is also slow. After a couple of years, I recognize that the show is actually about a thief that goes into people's minds trying to steal ideas. And I'm like, I have a moral conundrum. 
because I'm like, the theme of the show, he's the protagonist. The guy who's stealing ideas from people's minds. And I'm like, oh boy, this this is this is a tough one. But the, the only point I'm trying to highlight you with so that you can share the burden of my conscience, of course. The, the, point, the point I'm trying to highlight you with is even the themes of shows are terrible. Like Ocean's 13 is not exactly a good show. It, it really isn't. It roots for, like, Compton, it roots for the bad guy. Like, that, the very fact that our, our, we, we derive entertainment from watching people steal, watching people kill, and obviously in ways that are wrong. But watching people do these things serves to show us that even the things that we watch, we need to be careful about. Brethren, the reason John pauses in this letter to give us this all-important injunction is because we can be easily hoodwinked. We could be like me, watching Inception, and only find out, oh shoot, three years later, probably more than that, three years later, this probably isn't a show that I should be promoting or should be enjoying. Satan, again, does not come to you with a pitchfork. I've said this probably ad nauseum now. The world's things are cunning and crafted for your own pleasure and enjoyment. So John is ensuring that we are vigilant because the world will seek to lure us to love and support its things. Just think again of the, the abortion agenda and gay marriage that is couched in platitudes of human freedom and happiness, if you disbelieve me. The world's agenda is deeply pernicious, and what that means is it's dangerous in a very subtle way. You have to be vigilant, you have to be looking out for but seriously, the, the mental programming that the, the world, that we receive from media, it will not beget a further abhorrence or distaste of the world. Generally speaking, that's how the media is, generally speaking. We have an innate difficulty in not loving the world already due to in remaining corruption. Added to this, we were brought up in this world learning the world's agenda and its ideals for much of our lives. Therefore, we will not make much progress in overcoming the desires of the flesh and of the eyes without seeking to stir up affection for Christ and seeking to avoid those things that actually pull us and draw us to enjoy more and more of the world. It's tragic that we can finish three seasons of Suits in four days but can't get through the book of James in the same amount of time. These things, these kind of things are telling where our appetites are. And John argues, if it is so, our love for God is weak or absent. Let us therefore set our eyes upon the unseen things of Christ. Let us follow the spiritual treasures hidden in God's word that we may be able to see the traps of the devil and respond by rejecting the world and its things. Friends, I bid you to do no other thing than what is taught as mere Christianity. If you give no effort in your Christian life, be prepared, dear professing brother, and know that you are treading on slippery ground. We must take heed and watch ourselves and avoid carelessness in the Christian life. Recipients of God's grace who do not add effort to that grace will look increasingly like the children of the world. And John warns us that our corruption is present at every hour just yearning for another taste of the world. 
We ought to be leaning into Christ and deriving strength for time of need. Because as we write, as we read later in John, it is through Him that we are overcome, overcomers, not in our own strength. The the third vice that John mentions is the pride of life. And this is all subsumed in this big idea of the incentives that John uses to tell us stay away from the world. He's telling us that all is in the, that's in the world is the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is the next one. I say the third, but there's obviously overlaps among each of these things, but it should be evident to us that in this evil age, there is a perpetual advance on your soul to smother the love that you already have for God. Not by forcing you into submission, but by seduction to depart from greater loves and be enamored by lesser things. And so is the subtle lure of the pride of life, which appears even in our most noble endeavors. For instance, it's possible to occupy the pulpit for your own glorification. It's possible to give charitably, to be known as benevolent, and so on. It's possible to give all your riches just to be known as the giving guy. That's possible. Brethren, God isn't merely interested in our outward conformity to his law. Matters of the heart are open before him as well. And not only that, but we'll be judged by him. And so we ought to earnestly give heed to both our duties and the motivations for them. Why dare we boast about the things that we have freely received? Are we honestly so deluded that we actually think we can legitimately take credit for the accomplishments in our life? We came into this world naked and helpless. Saints, your intellect, your wealth, your academic qualifications, even the strides in your righteousness are all products of the Father's loving providence. It is He that we ultimately point to in praise. When you get to heaven, we're not all going to be each giving ourselves high fives. What do the elders do? They cast their thumbs down and say glory and honor to, to the one who made all of this possible. To God alone belongs this praise. But let's move now to our uh, final incentive. The reason for not loving the world, one of the reasons, the, the final reason we'll look at, is that the world and its desires are fleeting. I mentioned before that the world is a great peril to us. Sooner or later, the hard truth will confront us that the world is like a strong undercurrent at sea on a pristine day. While you're enjoying yourself, frolicking in the water, as the mint breeze is hitting your face and you're getting on your tan, eventually you will realize, well, that's for our North American friends. <laughs> not, not for us, we don't get on our tan. But as you, as you're, as you're mindlessly enjoying yourself, and enjoying the waves, you're slowly and slowly being dragged away from the safety of the shore. Without awareness and the consequent fight to return home, you are out to sea, unable to get back without much difficulty. 
Forget lionfish, man of wars, or even sea urchins. You may easily recover from those, but the slow tug of the world upon your soul is far more insidious and deadly. Sadly, laid hold of the world is what so many believe to be biblical Christianity. Many claim that Jesus came to give us life and give it to us more abundantly. Why shouldn't I have more of the world? Isn't that what Jesus came to give me? No, that's the insidious and dangerous prosperity gospel. God is not the servant of your carnal desires. God has never been the servant of anyone, in fact, or anything. God is God, and we ought to enslave ourselves to him. Again, I repeat, you came into this world naked. But look at all of you here, clothed. With no possessions were you born. But look at your affluence. Brethren, God has been so kind to us and given us a better position. You have been saved by Christ. And you're saved by Christ and you don't have to go through the mire of being saved by Christ and being poor. You're saved by Christ and he put you in a station where you're affluent. You're wealthy. You have much of the world's goods. But yet, we see in this passage the better portion, even after we look at our lives and see that Christ is for us sufficient. Even after we look at our lives and see that he has given us all of these things, we must remember that the goods of the world are fading. Its outcome is ultimately destined to destruction. And so is anyone who is attached to the world outside of Christ. The glamour of it all, the excitement of it all, it will ultimately pass with time. So what are you investing your time and labor in? What attracts the attention of your efforts and abilities? Is it building bigger barns here? Only a fool buys stock in a company which he knows is sure to go bankrupt. And only an unreasonable person is going to seek accommodation in a sinking ship. Think about that. Think about how silly that pursuit is. The things of this life will lose their luster and value. Some things may be more permanent than others, yes, but ultimately, when God comes back, platinum will burn the same way as stubble. All things will be changed. All things will be made new. There will be a removal of these things, and so you don't want to spend your life cleaving to them as they are removed. When God comes to judge, it will be shown just how trivial these things were in the grand scheme of things and how detestable the love of them are instead of love for him. Brethren, the world is not our oyster to do what we will with it. These, are, these possessions are trinkets compared to the riches that are stored up for us. Oh, that we would cast our gaze so that the things of the world would grow strangely dim. The things of this life obviously are not without value. George Dominey, the Puritan, once famously offered this advice about our engagement with the world and its things. He soberly reminds us, and I quote, Let us use worldly things as wise pilgrims do their staffs and other necessities convenient for their journey. So long as they help us forward in our way, let us make use of them. 
and accordingly esteem them. But if they become troublesome hindrances and cumbersome burdens, let us leave them behind. Cast them away. The temptations of prosperities, like unseen bullets, wound and kill us before they're even discerned. The things of this life must be possessed for Christ's sake. The house that you have, the jobs that you have, all must be had for Christ's sake. Otherwise, you're building your own kingdom on a foundation of sand and swimming in the world's agenda. But besides the transiency of the things in the world around us, there's a light temporal nature to the very desires of the world. There's misery experienced by those who have desires of this life which they cannot fulfill. There are people who will grow old, who will want things, who will recognize in their twilight years they haven't been able to enjoy them. And seeking to enjoy them is difficult for them. If you're 90 years old and your idea of the best life now was being able to walk around with a whole bunch of escorts and being able to sleep around, but you can barely get out of bed, that's a miserable estate to live in. All your life, your 90 years, you weren't able to do that and all that would be left for you is a fleeting desire. Because you can't even muster the strength to get around to enjoy it. That's the misery. That's the futility of desires of this world. Eventually, they will fade. But sometimes there's a sinister logic that pervades our minds when we think that the things in this life will pass. We think, I know it won't last, so maybe I should enjoy it as much as possible while I can. Make hay while the sun is out. You only have one life to live. And it's this precise logic that leaves people with disappointment and dissatisfaction when they lodge their hope for fulfillment in fleeting things of the world. The world is a sinking ship, as Conrad and Weiwei famously said. And we ought to be seeking to run off that ship and flee to our rock of safety, who is Christ, who is not only a refuge for us, but a safe haven where pleasures exist forevermore. Finally, brethren, you would think that the antithesis to the world passing would be that God abides. But as we read in the passage, it says in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The man who is given permanence is the man who does the will of God. The unseen things which are spiritual are of more value and more permanence than the things which are seen. Your efforts to love your children, to be diligent in your workplace, to be faithful spouse, spouses, to be faithful in your relationships in this church to love one another. Those things are of greater value and lead toward eternal blessings. We may never have the world's goods, brethren. We may never even be people of high esteem or of much repute. 
But Christ has determined he will reward us with a life which with him will last. Therefore, do not love the world as the charge. What a high calling. What a difficult goal. But could you offer anything less than every fiber of your being to God to achieve it? Could you look upon Christ's face with his nail-pierced hands and wounded side and say to him, such effort is unnecessary? Could your gaze meet his and you venture to express your unwillingness? Brethren, he has so endured these grievous pains that we and all those who trust by faith in him may abide with him, not only in this life, but in the age to come. Let us then repudiate the things which serve the agenda of Satan and strive to do the will of God. And by his help, we will so do.